If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're in Luke 11 this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. Luke 11. This morning we're going to start in chapter 14 of Luke 11 and go all the way to 28. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign of heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we hear your word, I pray that we would keep it, that you would give Dan wisdom as he preaches, that you would fill him with your spirit. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, um, and may we ascend to your word this morning, Lord. Amen. All right, as you heard read, we are in Luke chapter 11 this morning. I did want to take just a moment and thank all those who were involved with the activities over the weekend. Uh, first of all, Kristen and those in group one, two helped with the kids party for Valentine's Day. Uh, thank you for doing that. The kids had a blast. I know the parents had a good time as well, dropping the kids off, having an evening to themselves. So thank you guys for serving us in that way. Do appreciate it. And then for all those who helped with uh, the DeCoste baby shower uh, yesterday as well, uh, thank you for serving them well in that way. We appreciate it. It's good to see some of Brian and Daniela's family here uh, with us. It's not hard to pick out who is Daniela's family. Um, But it's good to see uh, them, have them here with us this morning. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. We come to the beginning of this episode, and you see uh, Jesus performing a miracle. He casts out the demon, and he he does so uh, right off the bat. He casts the demon out of this man. The man is mute. Obviously, the demon is causing this muteness. Jesus comes and performs this miracle. Luke gives very little time to the actual miracle itself. He kind of just mentions it, and then quickly moves on to the response that came because of this miracle. And really, the responses serve to set up Jesus Christ speaking once again about the kingdom of God. So this morning, we're not going to take too much time looking at the miracle itself, but move on to the responses that are given and move on to Jesus speaking about the kingdom and what we can learn about the kingdom. If you remember in review for some of us in Luke 4.43, Jesus Christ gives his mission here. He is going to go from city to city and he is going to proclaim the kingdom 
of God, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he starts out on this mission. And to help us in our time through Luke, we've defined the kingdom. We've defined it three different ways. The scripture speaks of kingdom in a few different ways. So I'm going to put you on the spot. We've reviewed this once before. Can anyone remember what is one of the ways when we speak of kingdom, what we are talking about? How is kingdom defined? Someone just shout out one of the ways. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is the rule and reign of Jesus, or very specifically where Jesus is. When Jesus is speaking later in Luke, we'll see in Luke 17, and they're arguing about the kingdom, he would tell them, the kingdom is in your midst because I am in your midst. Where Jesus is, the kingdom is. Anyone remember one of the other two ways that we speak about the kingdom? It is offensive. It's not specifically one of the two ways, but... (laughs) Now no one's going to answer since I... (laughs) It is offensive. It is an an offensive thing, the message of the kingdom is. But the kingdom then, secondly, when we speak of it, we speak about uh, the coming of the promised Messiah. And Mark would introduce it that way when when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. It's behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus is both the ruler and he is the true citizen. He is both the true David as king and he is the true Israel as that faithful son, the faithful citizen. And then thirdly, we've looked at it, and that's where we'll spend our time today once again, is the kingdom of God is the age to come breaking in on the age that is passing away. It is the age to come. It is Jesus Christ and that that perfect age to come breaking in right now on the age that is passing away so that we live in that dual existence. And Scripture speaks to that over and over again. How then do we live as citizens of heaven in the midst of an age that is passing away? And so that is where we'll find ourselves today as we speak about kingdom. Keep that in mind. So Jesus performs this miracle, and you see kind of an immediate response from the crowd. There's two, you see an antagonistic response, and you see a skeptical response. The antagonistic response, in verse 15, Jesus performs a miracle, people marvel, and some say, say to him, you cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of of demons. They're accusing him of doing this in the power of Satan. Beelzebul, I mean, the Lord of the Flies, it's a, an ancient pagan deity that became synonymous with either one of Satan's more powerful demons or Satan himself. And so they are dangerously close to the impardonable sin, blaspheming God. That would be to take the work of God and account it to the work of Satan, to deny the Holy Spirit and to call what is of God ultimate evil. And so they are antagonistic. And you think it makes sense if they are going to reject Jesus as a son of God, they see something supernatural happening. And so if it's not empowered by the son of God, by God, it's empowered by something in their natural response, then it is Satan that is empowering it. Secondly, you see a skeptical response. And this is no less unbelieving and no less dangerous here they see the response and it is okay maybe but let's see another sign let's see something else this isn't a heart that is teetering on belief this is a heart that is skeptical and isn't going to believe they just saw a sign from jesus and now they're demanding something different and if he performed something different for them they would demand something new it is a skeptical heart a skeptical look at Jesus Christ. And so this is the response. <clears throat> and then Jesus responds to them and he calls them on both being illogical and inconsistent in their responses. 
they're illogical this way, that if, if Jesus is coming and he's casting out a demon that Satan supposedly put in this person, and then he's casting out the demon by the power of Satan, that makes no sense. It's Satan defeating Satan in that time. It would make no, no sense that they would work against one another that way, a house divided. Secondly, it's inconsistent in that evidently at that time there is not an uncommon practice for some of the Jewish religious leaders as they encounter, whether it's a demon possession or what it might be, that they have the ability in some instances to cast out these demons or, or to speak of these demons. And it's widely accepted that when they do so, it's in the name and the power of God. It's in the name and the power of Yahweh. And yet now Jesus does it and they attribute it to Satan and so he calls them on their inconsistencies. If your own religious leaders are doing it in the power of God, why would you not attribute that to me? Or if you're going to say I'm doing it in the name of Satan, why wouldn't you say that about your other religious leaders? And once he kind of directly addresses then the skeptical and antagonistic response Then he moves in and he starts to speak to us about the kingdom. And there are just four points that I want to draw out for us as we work through the rest of this text about the kingdom of God. And the first point is this, the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is present. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is not, it, it, he is saying it is by the finger of God that he has cast these, out these demons. And because of that, it is a sign to you that the kingdom of God is upon you. The finger of God there is referring to the Spirit of God. If you look at Matthew, as he would, I think it's Matthew 12, as he accounts the same story for us. He uses the Spirit of God there, sort of finger of God, and that is what Luke is referring to. What we learn from this is that the kingdom is present. With the kingdom being present, it brings an unprecedented attack from Satan, unprecedented opposition from the domain of darkness. You notice you don't read hardly ever about demon possession before or after, but in the Gospels, it's every story it feels like we're encountering this. And it's the spiritual warfare that is taking place, that indeed the kingdom of God is coming, and it is invading, it is overwhelming the darkness. And the demonic, evil forces are gathering together to stop it. That's why you see this demonic oppression and demon possession and kind of all hands on deck for war that is breaking out. War that is about to start. You think in the Old Testament, of the 39 books, only five of the books actually mention Satan. You see him present there, and yet it is, it is not the main theme, but you see it is growing, it is growing. And when it gets to the New Testament, then it, it breaks forth. And this is a testament that the kingdom of God is present, and that is that the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, is rising up and the conflict is growing. 
we do see, the Bible has much to say about Satan. Often we, we maybe shy away from it, kind of Satan, demonic, darkness. It begins to sound like some sort of Star Wars, dreamy type language, and it just doesn't feel that real to us, and we back away from it. But from the very beginning of the story, Satan is very present. You see, introduced in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan, the great deceiver, this, this beautiful liar, rises up and immediately attacks God's creation, attacks God's people. And he rises up with deceit to destroy the works of God. And so as he would rise up, you see in Genesis 3, as he comes and he deceives Adam and he deceives Eve and they are driven out of the garden And now in the same way as the kingdom of God comes in Jesus Christ, you see Satan again, once again, in a very similar setting in the the wilderness temptation. We've been over this. And you see now Satan coming to Jesus full on with temptation to deceive and to destroy the Son of God. That is his intent. And he comes, but Jesus Christ stands firm in that wilderness temptation. He doesn't doesn't fall to the deceit of Satan by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. He overcomes. And then you see Jesus empowered by the Spirit. His baptism begins His ministry. In Luke 4, He goes to uh, Capernaum and immediately He confronts once again the sickness and demonic forces and He casts out the demon there in Luke chapter 4 in Capernaum and you realize this is war on Satan. This is war on the domain of darkness. It continues in our story. You come to Luke 8. You remember Luke 8 as he, he comes to the country of the, the Gerasenes and you have the man who is possessed, who lives naked, running through the graveyard, the tombstones, the people trying to keep him from hurting and killing himself. They, they put chains and they shackle him up and he is able by those demonic forces to, pa- to break loose, overpower those restraints. And Jesus comes to him and he rebukes the demon, really the legion of demons, and he casts them out. And you see it continues to grow. Luke 9, he comes down from the transfiguration once again and encounters. There's a man in the crowd who comes to him and talks about his son who is possessed with a demon and he is convulsing and and shaking and he's racked with this illness, misery that this demon is causing and Jesus rebukes the demon and casts him out. And that continues now in Jesus' mission as he brings the age to come, the kingdom of God, and the age that is passing away, it is war. And it's war that is going to continue to, to rage. There are many systems of, of teaching and thinking that, that tell us the kingdom of God is not present. It would go something like this, that Jesus came, he offered the kingdom... But because he died on the cross, it obviously shows that kingdom was rejected. And so now, instead of the kingdom, he's given us the church. Eventually, somewhere down the line, he will give us the kingdom again. The kingdom is present right now because the battle is raging. Because demonic forces are set up to overcome the king. So think of it for us in this moment as we go through the sermon. The kingdom is present now and war still wages. The second thing we learn about the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is greater 
than the domain of darkness. We can all rejoice in that. Verses 21 and 22, he gives this illustration. In in the illustration, Satan is the strong man. The one who is fully armed. That is Satan. The palace or the house where he resides, that is or was you, me, it's us. Anyone who is not in Christ is a son of disobedience. Scripture would tell us, a slave to sin, by nature a child of wrath, in bondage to evil and the evil one. We're caught in the domain of Satan and we are enthralled by it. That is everyone who is not in Christ. That is you. So in this illustration, the palace. And then the stronger man is Jesus. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 21 and 22. It says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes it, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That is the picture of the stronger man, Jesus, invading the darkness and overwhelming it. He doesn't ask permission. It's, it's not that he comes in. and When the stronger man shows up, it's his. And it kind of shows that overwhelming conqueror. He takes it. He divides the spoils. Victory is his. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to some of these promises. I'm going to read a few verses out of Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him." (laughs) This is that picture, the strong man fully armed. He has you in bondage. If you are not in Christ, you're currently in bondage, dead, blind. There's no getting out. And here's his biggest weapon. He stands to condemn you because he knows you haven't kept the law. He knows you haven't loved God like you should. You are not righteous. He stands to condemn you. And it is terrible to say that Jesus Christ came, offered the kingdom, but because they rejected Him, He ended up on the cross as if somehow that means the kingdom wasn't actually realized. This this passage tells us the exact opposite. It is on the cross that He gets His victory. Taking that greatest weapon, 
that Satan had to stand and to condemn you. And by dying on the cross, he takes it. He sets it aside, nailing it to the cross. That debt that stood against you, all its legal demands, damnation, triumphing over all of them in the cross. So that now Jesus Christ stands as our righteous advocate, as our mediator, and can tell us, I won't lose any of you, because only I can condemn. Satan lost that weapon because Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient all the way to the cross, as Acts 28 would add then. In his resurrection, he transferred us from the power of Satan to God. This is a couple verses from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The kingdom of God is greater than the domain of darkness. This should mean two things for us. One, the church is not the same thing as the kingdom, but it is in the church that the kingdom is most gloriously displayed, that the mission of the kingdom moves forward. And we need to understand that in our midst is Jesus Christ, and greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. The church is on mission. Jesus Christ says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've talked about this before. That's not a, we can sometimes think that's like a defensive thing, that we cower, and, but God's going to protect us, that hell's not going to fully take us on. No, just like Jesus' mission, the kingdom continues to be on the offensive, and the gates of hell aren't going to stop us. It should be an empowering, emboldening message that The king in our midst is greater than the domain of darkness. He is more powerful. And then secondly, we ought to be able to personalize it. Because all of that sounds good, but in our lives it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time, if we're totally honest. It feels like when we look around, it seems like the domain of darkness has a much stronger hold on things than the kingdom of God. Our daily experience, it starts to weigh upon us. And the pressures, all of it comes mounting in, and it can begin to feel like, okay, I know the right answer is the kingdom of God is greater, but it doesn't seem like it. But the promise remains true. That greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. He is the stronger man. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. The worst things that Satan can throw at us, Jesus Christ takes and he works them, and he works them for your good, making you an overwhelming conqueror in him. Romans 8. The kingdom of God is greater than the domain of darkness. Number three. The kingdom of God demands our allegiance. Verse 23 just makes that plain. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The claims of Christ are massive. 
and they demand full allegiance. I think we, we grow, we, we only see kind of just the here and now, and we forget the spiritual battle that rages. Ephesians uh, 5 or 6, um, when a long time ago, Pastor Adam preached on this whenever we went through Ephesians, whatever it was, like five years ago or something. And he made the point on there, just we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against evil and principalities and powers and darkness. And when you think, just you personally do this, think through like the last few weeks of your life and those things that seem difficult for you. It might be a job. It might be a face that you can put, a name that you can put with what's difficult, with your wrestling against, what's stealing your joy, what's stealing your energy. You think through those things, and it's so easy to begin to think, the battle is just right here in front of me. This is what I wrestle against. But that's not it. The, the struggle, which you can draw back the curtain, goes well beyond just a face or a name, and it becomes a spiritual struggle that indeed Satan is trying to use whatever he can to tear your allegiance away from Christ, to steal your joy, to get you to turn and embrace a new and what you think is a better treasure. He is still deceitful. He's still beautiful. And he'll do whatever he can. And if that means that I put my struggle and my enemy and I give it a face and a name that then I can deal with on my own, then behind the curtain, Satan is destroying you. There needs to be a reality that we wrestle against something much greater than just flesh and blood that's in front of us. I think because of this, we, we approach sin and Satan so casually because it does start to become like, wow, this preacher up here is over the top. Satan, darkness. It, it sounds like, again, some Star Wars dreamy saga we're making something up to scare everybody that's not real life real life is this is real life the scheme of satan is for you to think it's no big deal i can flirt with sin i can dabble with it it's not a big deal it's fun for a little bit and you just get callous to it and allegiance gets split and you would always say you know, my allegiance is to God, but there's very little in your life that would indicate it. Undivided allegiance to God with your time, with your energy, with your money, with your resources. Are you investing in the church, investing in the kingdom, giving to others, spending your time for others? And we just get really, really, really casual with our allegiance. And then we start putting faces to what really is our enemy. And before long, we've totally lost sight that there's a battle, there's a war going on for our soul. And we're in the midst of sin. And the claims of this kingdom are great. There is no neutral ground. There is no just trying it out and I'll take a little of this and a little of that. Either you see the works of Jesus Christ and you say he is the son of God and I believe it, or what's your other option? So accuse him of being Beelzebub. 
kingdom of God demands our allegiance. And fourth, the kingdom of God demands real gospel transformation. He's going to use another illustration here and then use this shout out from the lady in the crowd to drive these points home for us. Verse, I'm going to read verses 24 through 26 and we'll make some comments on it. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. In this, you're still the house. It's a person. It's us. It's somebody. The palace, the house. I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell here, dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, it's a story, so let's not get too hung up on every single little word and try to figure too much out. But we do learn a little bit about demons and Satan, the way he works here. Apparently, there is some freedom in the way that the demons come and go and move. And, and like, just like in, in the times of Christ, when the kingdom of God is growing strong, the demonic evil forces, temptation grows up. And so when things are going well and the kingdom of God seems to be flourishing, you'll see the pressure of the domain of darkness growing. And so you see they seem to come and go. We do learn, just as a note from this, that demons aren't omnipresent. They're not all-knowing. They're not (laughs) all-powerful. They're a strong man, but they're not the stronger man. That is Jesus. They are strong, but they are not God or his equal in any way. So what seems to be the case here is, again, whether it's demon possession or just spiritual oppression, I'm kind of mixing the two this morning, because we all know we face that sort of pressure from the domain of darkness, even if you've never encountered or have any idea about actual demonic possession, we do feel that oppression from the age it is passing away. Scripture tells us that, always the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, pressuring upon us. And so you feel this kind of demonic type of oppression. And things are rough and things are tough for you. And then you come to a season of, of rest. And the way he describes it here is that demon is, has moved about, kind of restless, moving on somewhere else. And, and that time of oppression in your life and temptation is eased. And what takes place in that is with a new energy, you decide to do a little bit of house cleaning. You do some moral-type renovation of your own self, of your own power, your own self-help, whatever it is, and you start to do some renovation. You're cleaning things up. You want to get rid of this, get rid of this. I'm going to start doing that. And there's some external renovation going on. Things look a little better. It would be the person who, as we've talked about, would say, the problem is out there, the answer is in here, And out of his own good work and self-merit and worth, he tries to deal with that external problem by some external moral renovation. Things are going a little better for you. Then back comes the pressure of this age that is passing away. Whether it's demon coming at you or whatever it is, this evil, this age that is passing away, and it comes back stronger than it was before. 
And now you're in a worse shape than you were before because your external moral renovations, when the pressure starts mounting, can't stand up to it. And you're immediately buried under that pressure. And it says things are worse for you than they were before. You probably experienced that at some point. All of us seem to have a temptation. We battle that we have moments of victory and then we, we fail and moments of victory. And when you kind of in your own strength and your own, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, maybe you'll see like a few moments or months of victory. And then it comes crashing down in on you because it, it can't last. So what is lasting then? The crowd is seeing Jesus cast out this demon. They've marveled. Now they're hearing him speak about, about spiritual warfare with a knowledge that is just beyond what they have understood before. And a, a woman gives a shout out from the crowd. Verse 27, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. Blessed is Mary. And Jesus answers her. He doesn't rebuke her. It's not necessarily a wrong statement. She is blessed among women, both with the privilege of carrying child, her great obedience and faith and trust in the Lord through that. They said, blessed rather, almost the idea of, well, even more blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's simple, but that's gospel transformation. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The love of God is to obey Him. Here's gospel transformation. Here is how the kingdom is established through the Word of God. Through the proclamation of the gospel. Blessed is the one who recognizes the problem isn't out there and the answer in here, but it's flipped. The problem is internal. And I need something outside of me to rescue me. The strong man has me hemmed in. He has me in bondage. I need the stronger man to come and set me free. And then recognizes, as we've said over and over again, what does it mean to be a kingdom citizen? It is to be marked by faith and obedience Humility and mercy, those are the themes that we see coming up again and again and again. And so that means you give yourself to the means of grace. You give yourself to the Word. You give yourself to being at church and putting yourself under the Word. You give yourself to to coming and taking of the table and experiencing and, and seeing the gospel proclaimed and being strengthened in it through the elements of the table. That is genuine gospel transformation. Is it perfect obedience? No, never. We, we all know that. The church and individually is never going to perfectly reflect the kingdom until the kingdom is fully consummated and the evil one is finally and totally put away. And that's going to happen. Overwhelming victory was already won at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what it means now to be marked as a kingdom person, what is the demand of the kingdom is genuine gospel transformation. 
That is, by faith in the power of the Spirit, we hear the word of grace. And then by faith in the power of the Spirit, we walk in grace, striving to obey the King. There's great promise. There is the reality that the kingdom is present. When the kingdom is present, spiritual warfare heightens, and we live in that right now. Promises, we serve the stronger man who overwhelms Satan. Let's pray. God, might you strengthen us with your word. Lord, might we become